morning. I'd like to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. I've entitled the message this morning, Woe to Apostates. And we're continuing our verse-by-verse study of this little book of Jude. Jude is a letter that was written to a church dealing with false teachers. These teachers were threatening the orthodoxy of the original apostles' message. So the church addressed in this letter had already heard the apostles' message, they believed it, but now these false teachers had moved in and they, they claimed to have some new revelation. They claimed to have a higher source and they have infiltrated the church and they're causing division and conflict as they attempt to replace the original apostles' message. So this little book is a very, very stern warning. Trying to protect the church against these apostates. Now the epistle of Jude has a definite chiastic structure. You know what that means now, right? <laughs> the outline clearly shows the importance of, of this book pertains to the church and its preservation. The battle against the apostates is really at the heart of this letter. So today we come to Jude 11, which is really an important verse because Jude 11 is the center of the chiasm. Now, several weeks ago, Jeff taught on chiasm. So if you need a refresher, go back to that message. Look at that again. I don't want to spend a lot of time going over this because Jeff did a good job covering it. And if you have any questions about chiasm, just ask Jeff, okay? He'll be glad to answer you because he's the chiasm expert around here, all right? (laughs) But let me give you just a few points before we look at this chiasm. According to Thomas B. Clark, he says a chiasm or chiasmus is a writing, a writing style that uses a unique repetition pattern for clarification and or emphasis. Often called the chiastic approach or the chiastic structure, this repetition form appears throughout the Bible, yet is not well known. The way you approach the scripture should be dramatically enhanced as you learn what a chiasm is, how to recognize chiasms, and how to glean a fresh appreciate application from these New and Old Testament passages. So a chiasm is a literary structure. It's a writing style that uses a unique repetition pattern to show clarity and emphasis within a story. Now, Brian Davis, who... um, Brian is uh, a fellow Berean. He's, uh, uh, He's part of this ministry. He lives in Pennsylvania. He had a show in the past on AD 70 where he dealt strictly with chiasm. So... He's uh, spent a lot of time in research on this, and Brian says this, he says, parallelisms and chiasms were a seriously needed element of internal organization in ancient writings, which did not make use of paragraphs, punctuation, capitalization, and other such synthetic devices to communicate the conclusion of one idea and the commencement of the next. And that, that's important to understand. When the original writing, you know, there's no paragraphs, there's no, you know, capital, it's just text on a page, you know, so it's a little bit different, but this style was very helpful to them. Now, Brian goes on to say, this can show why chiasmus was attractive for the ancient Hebrew. First, chiasmus are easy to memorize and would be useful since the Hebrew tradition was mainly oral. And we've gone over that, we understood that. That was their, to them, they trusted the oral communication. They didn't trust writings, all right, so it was oral. This helped in memorizing things. Alright. Uh, second, he says, chiasmus was in vogue just as 16th century English poets were fond of the sonnet. Chiasmus seems to have been preferred by many of the ancient Hebrew writers. 
Third, the form can be very pleasing aesthetically. All right, now as I said, June 11 is the center of the chiasm. And the center of the chiasm is understood to be the key or the focal point of the text. So as we look at verse 11, this is Jude's focal point. This is his key. This is where we're to look to grasp the emphasis of the whole story. So here's how Jude breaks this down as a chiasm. We're going to switch now to full screen, and I'm going to disappear so you can see this, because I couldn't get it in the, in the small screen here. All right, but if you look, first of all, you see the assurance of Christians in Jude 1 and 2. But then if you look at verses 24 and 25, you see the exact same thing. Assurance of Christian. He starts this letter out with assurance. He ends it with assurance. That's very important, people. In dealing with a letter of apostasy, a letter of falling away, it's important that we understand this. All right, from there he moves to the believer and the faith in Jude 3 and the believer in the faith in Jude 20 and 23. You see how this chiasm works. Apostates are described in Jude 4. They're also described in Jude 17 through 19. And then apostasy in the Old Testament history in Jude 5 through 8. And apostasy in Old Testament prophecy in Jude 14 through 16. And then we see apostates in the supernatural realm in verses 9 and 10. And then apostates in the natural realm in 12 and 13. And then we come to the very center, the ancient trio of apostates. Now, Jude is a really good example of chiasms. It breaks down simply. I think you can see this here. I don't have time to go through and read all these verses, but I maybe encourage you to do it. This chiasm is laid out in the notes, and it's also obviously in the video. You can pause the video, not right now, but you can pause the video later, and you can look at this and look up these verses, and you'll see how this lays out. It's, it's interesting, and I think this will help you maybe grasp a little bit better this whole idea of chiasm. But I said, if you're struggling with it, call Brian up in Pennsylvania. He'd be glad to talk to you about it. Jeff would be glad to talk to you about it. I'm not that into it. Okay, I just I think it's important. I think it's obviously there, but it's not always as simple as Jude to break down and see what's there. All right, Brian on his website has several of Paul's books broken down in a chiastic structure, so you can look at them. He's got them color coded too, so that's also very helpful. All right, so verse 11 is the center of this chiasm. You see that there. So it's understood. This is the focus of the text. This is what Jude wants his readers to understand. All right, with that said, let's look at verse 11. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain. For pay, they have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam, and they perish in the rebellion of Korah. Now, notice the progression here. They've gone the way of Cain. They rushed in the air of Balaam. They perished in the rebellion of Korah. First, there's a path they take. Then there's an escalation of their speed. Ultimately, there's a disastrous end. All these men, all three of them, are involved in a false doctrine. They have departed from the truth, which is apostasy. And again, there's three of them here because Jude loves triads. He uses triads all through this letter. All right? Now, Jude's use of these examples suggested his readers were familiar with the Hebrew Scriptures. He doesn't go into detail. He just lays them out. Cain... Balaam, Korah, they knew this. I think all students of Scripture are familiar with these guys. All right, In some sense, you know, you've read about them. Um, we know about them. He starts out, woe to them. This is called a woe article by scholars. Woe is from the Greek word oai. All right? Oai is an automata poetic word. Okay, it's, it gives you kind of an eerie sound. Some say it's like the cry of an eagle, but it's expressing a cry of intense distress. 
displeasure or horror. And I think this is why this is the center of the chiasm. He's saying, oh, I, you know, judgment to them. It conveys a warning of impending disaster to the hearers. And Jude here is following the example of earlier authors in Scripture. Moses does this, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, John the Baptist did it, and our Lord did it. You know, I think one of the more famous ones of our Lord is Matthew 23. But woe to you! Oh, he's pronouncing judgment. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Now, that doesn't sound like Yeshua was being very politically correct, does it? I mean, he'd have a fit with the news media today. You can't do that. You can't call people hypocrites. But they were hypocrites, so he just said it like it was. It's not unkind. It's just the truth. He says, you shut up the kingdom of heaven from people, and you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering in to go. So Yeshua is saying, he goes on from this text and he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Woe to you, blind guides. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You know, by the sixth, seventh time, you think they caught on? I mean, this he's talking. They're there and he's talking to them. Woe to you. Judgment upon you. Most New Testament uses of oi are in the context of warning about inevitable impending judgment. Oi is used in the Septuagint to translate two Hebrew words, oi and hoi, which are used in the Tanakh of a funeral lament. They're used of a cry to get attention, but mostly of an announcement of doom. Hoi and oi are used of a cry of despair and a call for one's attention because of a pending judgment. So Jude is saying, woe to them. Judgment is coming. And the woe is to the them. Who is the them he's talking about here? It's the creepers. It's those who have crept into the church. It's the apostates that he's warning the church about. So here is a woe article. And the lessons from history have to do with Cain, Balaam and Korah. He says, woe to them because they're going in this same direction. He says, they have gone the way of Cain. You know, Cain was the first heretic in the Bible. In fact, in Jewish literature, he is called the first heretic. He was a rebel against God. We find his story in Genesis 4. It says, that now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of Yahweh. Again, she gave birth to his brother, Abel. And Abel was a keeper of the flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to Yahweh of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought the firstling of the flock and their fat portions. And Yahweh had regard for Abel and for his offering. Alright, so here we have Cain. He brings an offering. He brings the fruit of the ground. Okay? Why? Because that's what he did. Okay? Abel, he brings the firstling of the flock. So, we see very early on, right after the fall of man, somehow they had instructions from Yahweh. Okay? They had communication. We don't know about it, but obviously they had it because they knew what they were supposed to do. So, obviously they had some kind of instructions. They knew about their sinfulness and rebellion against Him, and they knew that somehow an atonement was required. 
It says, but for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So the text says, for Abel and his offering, he had regard. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry. He's like, why do you accept my brothers and not mine? And his countenance fell. And Yahweh said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. But you must master it. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel and killed him. So here we have the first murder in the Bible. And I'm sure the people started yelling and screaming, you know, we need to have better gun laws. You know, because somebody died. Well, there wasn't any guns, but men still killed men because the issue is not the instrument. The issue is the heart. All right? And so the first murder here. Well, why did Yahweh have regard for Cain's offering, but not for Abel's? I mean, why accept one and not the other? Well, there's a lot of theologians who want to argue and debate about that, you know, because he brought the fruit of the ground and he didn't bring a sacrifice. And I think that's tied to it. But if you really want to know the answer, we just look in the Bible. Now, let's go to Hebrews. Because Hebrews 11.4 tells us, it says that by faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, through though he is dead, he still speaks. Now, you got to remember this. Abel was born outside of the Garden of Eden. So he never really had the opportunity to know Yahweh in a personal, intimate way, as his parents did. But he obviously knew him. He's obviously given instructions. So these two boys, they bring an offering to God. One's accepted and one's rejected. Why? Well, the writer of Hebrews tells us that Abel's sacrifice was a better sacrifice. Why was it better? Well, the Greek word here, polos, means greater or more important. Why was Abel's sacrifice better? I think it was better because the Scripture says it was offered in faith. It says, by faith, he offered it. That's the thrust of the whole 11th chapter of Hebrews. The thing that sets these brothers apart, people, is faith. Alright? And to do something by faith, you must do it in response or according to the Word of God. You know, people say, well, you just got to have faith. Faith in what? You have to have something to believe in. Faith is believing. In order to believe, you have to have a proposition to believe in. You have to have God tell you something and then you say, I believe what He said. People say, I'm just believing God for this. God never said that. He never promised you that. You can't believe God for what He never promised you. That's presumption. That's not faith. You need a promise from God. Well, He had a promise from God. He must have believed something that God told Him. So He offered the sacrifice. Look at Genesis 4.3 again. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to Yahweh of the first of the fruit of the ground. Now, the phrase here in the course of time is literally rendered at the end of days. In other words, at the end of a prescribed time. So Yahweh must have revealed a special day to sacrifice. I think this also indicates the fact that they both came at the same time, that there was a time to do this, and so they're doing it. What did Yahweh tell them? Well, we're not really sure what He told them, but we know that He gave them a promise in Genesis 3. Genesis 3 he says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, 
You shall bruise him on the heel. So he's giving them a promise of a coming redeemer to fix the problem. And in Genesis 3.21, we see that sin brought death. 3.21, and Yahweh, Elohim, made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. So he had to make garments, and the garments had to come from skin, meaning something had to die to provide this. See, Adam and Eve, they got, they made their own garments. They got a bunch of fig leaves and made their own things. They said, we're good. We're taking care of ourselves. And God said, no, no, that's not how it is. I have to do the providing. There has to be death. He provided a sacrifice. So animals are sacrificed to cover, cover Adam and Eve's sin. So Adam and Eve must have taught their children that death is a result of sin. And by faith in God's provision, Abel offered a sacrifice. Verse 4 says, Abel on his part also brought of the firstling of the flock and of their fat portions. And Yahweh had regard for Abel and for his offering. Now, the separate mention here of the fat portion tells us that the lamb had been slain. Okay? You got the animal, he brought the firstling, and the fat portions, it's slain, it's cut up. He wants us to understand he didn't just bring an animal and say, here you go. No, it was dead. It was a sacrifice. It's not intrinsic merit in the firstling of the flock above the fruit of the ground. It was faith in God's appointed means that made the difference. The sacrifice implied an acknowledgement of his own desert of death and a confession that he believed that death of an innocent substitute would be accepted by God on his behalf. So Abel understood one of the greatest truths a man can know. Abel understood the way in which it was necessary to approach God. He understood that God is approached only through faith. That's it. Cain was grieved that God wouldn't accept his sacrifice. And, and you know what? The same thing is going on today. When you preach that there's one way to heaven, it's through the cross, it's through the blood of Christ, people get upset. I don't like that way. Cain thought that his own works could justify him in the sight of God. How many people today think that? I'm doing this, I'm doing that, I'm doing whatever. You ask him, how do you know you're right with God? How do you know you're going to heaven? Well, I do this and I do that. And you know right away, hey, you're following Cain. Not a good way to go. Apostates always think there's something they can do. Always. And they thereby pervert the gospel of grace. They change it into a gospel of works. That's the way of Cain. He was, it was a work salvation. He was going to earn his way. He was going to do what he thought was right to do. The way of Cain is to think that you can do something. Somehow you can make yourself right with God and become a child of God by taking some kind of action. That's the thinking that some action on my part, however so small, however insignificant, could justify me, can save me, can cause me to stand in the presence of Christ. However, God doesn't have respect under those types of offerings. He didn't have respect to Cain's offering, and he won't have respect to anybody's offering. No matter what the church, you know, people in the church think they're getting right because they're doing this or they're doing that. Some kind of social action, some kind of penance, some kind of thing to earn favor with God. Yahweh rejects those who try to get right to Him on their own merit. And even when it's through the works of the law, so many people are, are you know, the law is put forth in the church, and if you do this and you do that, you can be right with God. It's the way of Cain. And the apostates are still teaching the way of Cain today. 
Nothing we can do with our hands will ever cause us to enter the presence of Yahweh. Works will only bring us under His judgment and we'll end up just like Cain. We have many people today who still slander the way of approach to Yahweh through Yeshua the Christ. Through His atoning sacrifice. Well, you know, it was the Lord Himself who said, Yeshua said to him, I am the way, and the rendering here is I'm the way, the only way. I'm the truth, the only truth. I'm the life, the only life. No one comes to the Father but through me. An exclusive way of salvation is taught plainly by the Lord and the other New Testament writers. That's the only way you get to heaven is through Yeshua the Christ. And listen, and yet, John Hagee, one of the most popular, one of the most accepted, one of the largest churches today in our country, is an apostate and teaches that the Jews do not need Yeshua. They don't need the gospel of Christ. They have their own covenant with God and they don't need the gospel. Who did Christ come to die for? His own. Who were Jews. And yet Hagee says, no, they don't need that. The church for ten years was nothing but Jews. I don't know what Bible Hagee's reading. You know, I think he's more of a politician than a preacher. And he's working and he's got this whole Zionistic thing going, you know, to try to help, you know, get the Jews back to Israel so they can be slaughtered in the tribulation. Hey, that's great, right? Makes a lot of sense. Listen, what Hagee preaches is a damnable lie. He is an apostate. He's going the way of Cain. He tells his people, you're not allowed to preach the gospel to Jews. And it doesn't seem to wait, you know, Christians don't bat an eye lash over that. It's like, oh, okay, well, yeah, I guess we can't. We don't need to get them saved. It's their gospel. He is, Yeshua is a Jewish man who came for his own. How do we miss this stuff? Well, the story ends with Cain banished from the presence of Yahweh. A mark is put on him so he won't be killed. But he has to spend his entire life tormented being expelled from the presence and the blessing of Yahweh. That's the way of Cain. The point is, Jude's point is, just like Cain was punished for his sins, so will Yahweh punish those apostates who Jude was warning his readers about. And that's Jude so strong on that apostates are going to be punished. Those who trouble the brethren with false doctrine, they're going to suffer for it. You know, and Hagee claims to you know preach into a million homes. There will be judgment. When you tell people the gospel is not for the Jews. Alright, he goes on to say, and for pay, they have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam. The story of Balaam is found in Numbers 22 through 24. And it's an interesting story, because if you just read the story of Balaam, you kind of scratch your head and say, I don't get what's all going on here. But if you read other parts of scripture, you know, scripture interprets scripture, you put it together, it makes a lot more sense. You get the whole picture. You remember when the children of Israel, they're journeying from Egypt, they're going to the promised land, they camped in the plains of Moab, beyond Jordan, opposite of Jericho, and Balak, who was the king of Moab, saw what Israel had done. He saw, he heard the story about Egypt, and he's a little bit scared of these people, okay, and he's got good right to be, okay. Egypt people, when they left, Egypt was devastated. There was ruin. There was not, I mean, everything was wiped out. And here are the children of Israel taking their riches and they marching free. And then he hears all these other things that's going on, what they had done to the Amorites. And so he knew about this. So he's, he's scared. He's fearful and he needs to be. So what does he do? 
He says, so Moab was in great fear because of the people, for they were numerous, and Moab was in dread of the sons of Israel. They're afraid of them. So Balak sends representative to Balaam. He says, I know this guy, he's a seer. Balaam, go there and see if you can hire this seer to come curse these people. I need these people cursed. All right, so Numbers 22, 6 says, Now therefore, please come. They're talking to Balaam. Please come, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. See, I can't, I can't beat them. But if you curse them, that'll be good. All right? They're too mighty for me. Perhaps I may be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land, for I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. This indicates that Balaam had a reputation for being able to directly connect with the gods. Balaam insists that, well, I'd like to come with you, but let me consult Yahweh. I can only do what Yahweh tells me. He sounds real spiritual. We'll we'll see this. In verse 18, he says, Balaam replied to the servants of Balak, though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold. It's kind of like, eh, let's up the, even if you gave me that, he always indicating how much pay am I going to get here? I could do, I could not do anything, either small or great, contrary to the command of Yahweh, my Elohim. Now, this is interesting because Balaam here is calling Yahweh his Elohim, his God. Sounds spiritual, right? Well, Yahweh initially refuses to allow Balaam to go. No, you can't go. You can't curse Israel. But they come back and they ask him again. So he goes, ah, let me go back to God. All right, like a child. I'm going to keep bugging you till I get the answer I want, you know. So eventually the Lord says, yeah, okay, you can go, but you're not going to curse Israel. All right. So Balaam says, all right, let's go. I'm allowed to go. So, you know, he's making progress. He thinks he's getting somewhere. Now, listen, he's promised some money, okay? So he's like, all right, let's get going. So he's on the way. He's traveling. Well, God is angry with him. So Yahweh blocks his path. And Balaam's riding his donkey, and his donkey stops. And Balaam, who cannot see the angel of the Lord that's standing in the path, he beats his donkey. And this happens three times before Yahweh opens the donkey's mouth, allowing him to rebuke Balaam. So Balaam's like, what the heck's going on? I'm trying to get there, and this donkey's acting crazy, you know, and he's just angry. Why is my donkey doing this? He doesn't see the angel. The donkey sees, he doesn't see. Okay, this is a seer. All right, this guy's a really good prophet, all right? He doesn't see what's going on here. All right? Uh, it says, and Yahweh opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, what have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? Does that seem shocking to you? Here's a donkey talking. You know, I could see his head's turned back around looking at Balaam like, what What have I done? Now, that, that part of the story is not even shocking. This is the shocking part. Then Balaam said to the donkey. He just starts having a conversation with it. It's like he's not surprised. Doesn't shock him at all. I mean, I'd be like, did you just say something to me? I mean, he actually, oh, just let's go on. Hey, Balaam said, because he's answering the donkey, okay? Because you made a mockery of me. If there had been a sword in my hand, I would have killed you now. So the donkey says to Balaam, Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life to this day? Have I ever been accustomed to do so to you? And he said, well, No, donkey, I guess you haven't. You know? Again, this is scary on this conversation. Then Yahweh opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of Yahweh standing in the way with his sword drawn in his hand, and he bowed all the way to the ground. So the, you know, his eyes are open and he sees and he goes, oh man, I see what's going on now. The donkey's literally saving my life. Well, the angel allows him to go on. 
but he's reminded you're only allowed to bless the Israelites. So Balaam finally arrives with Balak there, and he takes them to three different high places from which they can view the Israelites. I want you to come up to this high place. You can see them. So they get to the place, okay, and each time they set up seven altars, and they offer sacrifices, and they wait to hear from Yahweh. And each time, Balaam gives a blessing. And Balak goes, no, no, I want you to curse him. Let's go to another place. Gets to another place, set up the altars, do all the thing, and he blesses him again. This guy's just frustrated. What are you doing to me? I need you to curse him. Well, as we saw earlier in Numbers, Balaam sounds spiritual. We see that. You know, he calls Yahweh, Yahweh, my Elohim. But as we look at other texts, we kind of see a different story about Balaam. Let me show you a few texts. Joshua 13.22 The sons of Israel also killed Balaam, the son of Beor, who the diviner. So here we see that Balaam practiced divination, a practice that was condemned in the biblical text. Now, some passages indicate that Balaam tried to curse Israel, but Yahweh refused to listen to him or forced him to bless him. Look at this text in Joshua 24, 9 and 10. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel, and he sent and summoned Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I was not willing to listen to Balaam. So he had to bless you, and I delivered you from his hand. So... You get the indication here, he's trying to curse them. But Yahweh's saying, ah, I'm not listening to you. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to curse him. I delivered you from his hand. So, you know, Oliver, his intentions are, I want to curse him. Why? Because, hey, there's a pot of gold waiting here for me at the end of this rainbow, but i got to curse these people first. All right? Look at Nehemiah 13, 2. Because they did not meet the sons of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God turned a curse into a blessing. So now we, again, we get this idea. He's trying to curse them, but Yahweh keeps turning it into a blessing. So these texts, I think, are indicating that Balaam tried his best to pronounce a curse. He desired to curse Israel. He was paid to curse Israel, and he wanted to curse Israel. It was Yahweh who turned the curse into a blessing. In other words, Balaam is saying things that he didn't want to say. He's saying blessings, and he wants to say a curse. And Yahweh is forcing him to bring a blessing upon Israel where he really wanted to curse him. And I think this passage emphasizes Yahweh's saving acts for his people. Here's his people, and the seer's trying to curse them, and Yahweh continues to bless them. Now, Hackett suggests that the story in Numbers 22-24 would have had an ironic tone to its original readers. He says, here you have the great diviner Balaam, servant of the non-Israelite gods in the area of Gilead, is in fact controlled by Yahweh. And that's a pretty cool turn of the story here. Here's Balaam. Balaam, He is just being controlled by Yahweh. Yahweh, our God, is sovereign over everything, including this false prophet. And he keeps trying to curse, and he just can't do it. He's blessing Israel. And Yahweh uses this false prophet not only to bless Israel, but Balaam gives us some prophecies of the coming Messiah that are just incredible great prophecies. This false prophet, look what he says in Numbers 24, 17. I see him, referring to Messiah, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall arise from Israel and shall crush through the forehead of Moab and tear down all the sons of Seth. So here we see a prophecy of the coming Christ that Balaam utters. 
And he utters this because Yahweh controls all things and he can even use a jackass to get his message across. And we see that. So here he's speaking through Balaam, giving a prophecy of Christ. Alright, so Balak, he doesn't get the curse he wants on Israel. And because he doesn't get the curse he wants on Israel, Balaam doesn't get the pay that he wants to get. He couldn't curse him. So he says, I got to do something. I mean, I got money here. I got money on the table and I can't let it go. I got to figure out a way to get this money. So he comes up with another plan. He comes to Balak and he says, I got a plan for you. I can't curse him. I tried. I tried. I just can't do it. But I got a plan for you. You get your people to intermarry with the Israelites. Get them to worship your gods and God will curse them. Good plan. The only way to destroy Israel was through corruption. So in Numbers 25, 1-9, recounts how Israel joined with the Moabites. While Israel remained at Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. So here they are, they're getting involved with these other people who God clearly told them not to do. For they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. And the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor, and Yahweh was angry against Israel. So he couldn't curse them, but he had a plan. If you get them to sin, God will curse them. Good plan. And because of this, Yahweh did. He judged them. Numbers 25, 4. And Yahweh said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before Yahweh, so that the fierce anger of Yahweh may turn away from Israel. And we see in verse 9, those who died by the plague were 24,000. So here we have 24,000 Israelites died and Balak didn't lift a finger. In Numbers 31.16, we learn that Balaam had advised King Balak to corrupt Israel through intermarriage, which would entice Israel to worship idols. Look at Numbers 31.16. Behold, these caused the sons of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against Yahweh in the matter of Peor so that the plague was among the congregation of Yahweh. So he gives counsel to the king. You know, I I can't curse them, but I got a plan for you. Get them to sin, God will curse them. We see in Revelation 2 that Yahweh says to the church of Pergamum, I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam. So there's people, now we're going back into the New Testament church now, Revelation 2, and he goes, you got people in your church that are holding to the teaching of Balaam. What's the teaching of Balaam? Who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and commit adult acts of immorality. So this same thing's going on in New Testament church. And this is what Jude's warning them of. Be careful of the doctrine. Be careful of the teaching of Balaam. His teaching is to get the children, God's children, to sin. So God will judge them. Seduce the people of God into sin. Yahweh will judge them himself. The doctrine of Balaam is to curse the church. To commit immorality. Get them involved in immorality and idolatry and bring the judgment on them. And it worked. The council worked. I imagine he got paid. Because it worked out the way he wanted it to, right? And our text says he rushed headlong into the air of Balaam. Now, he says here, and for pay, 
have rushed. He's talking about the people that he's writing. Jude is talking about the people of his day that he's writing against. These people, just like them, they've rushed headlong into the air of Balaam. The Greek word here for rushed headlong is acheo, and Thayer says it's used of those who give themselves up to a thing. The Greek word literally is the idea of pouring water down a hill. It's rushing down a hill. And then we have the word error here. Error is a wandering, a straying about where one led astray from the right path. It's to roam to and fro. And he says they do it for pay. This is misthos, which literally refers to pay, which is due for labor performed. It's dues paid for work. He's done something, he's going to get paid for it. The idea is that Balaam put aside all restraint and he rushed headlong to a course of life that promised material gain. And these apostates in Jude's day are doing the same thing. They're going after the money. They want to get paid. And so they're rushing headlong into this. Now watch how Peter... Remember, Peter is a parallel text to Jude. Notice what Peter says about this in 2 Peter 2, 14 and 15. Having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed. Accursed children, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, and loved the wages of unrighteousness. They're involved in money here. They want the money. And so they're corrupting the children of God because of it. He says they have gone astray. This is from the Greek word planao. Figuratively, planao means a going astray as from orthodox or leaving sound doctrine. It's a wandering out of the way. Vincent says, planao is an error which shows itself in action. The Mishnah states, the characteristics of the Talmudim of Belim, the wicked, are an evil eye, a proud soul. They inherit Gehenna and descend into the pit of destruction. Now, the Talmudim here, Talmudim means disciples. So the disciples of Balaam, he says, have an evil eye. Now, what does he mean by evil eye? An evil eye is a Hebrew idiom. Idioms are cool things. If you don't know an idiom, you're not going to figure it out. Okay? you got to understand. We have a lot of American idioms, right? We talked about this before. Things that we say that makes no sense. He kicked the bucket. Well, okay, so what? Well, we're saying he's dead. He's dead. But how do you get kicked the bucket to dead? I don't know. I wouldn't know that unless somebody tells it to you. We learn these idioms in our country. But this is a Hebrew idiom. An evil eye is an idiom for stinginess or greed. Now, when you read that now in Matthew about an evil eye, you know, his eye is single or his eye, that's talking about greed. It's talking about covetousness. So it's a Hebrew idiom. Balaam didn't really care anything about God's people as long as he benefited financially. That's all. He was just in it for the money. You know, there's money on the table. I got to curse them. What about so many of today's so-called televangelists? You know? Men whose TV programs are almost exclusively dedicated to get people to send them money. The whole program's about that. I mean, you throw scripture in here and there and hallelujah and praise the Lord, but give us your money. Men like Creeflo Dollar. You ever heard of Creeflo Dollar? Yeah, Creeflo Dollar lives a typical life of a billionaire. Okay. He, uh, here's one of his homes. He and his wife Tiffany own a mansion in Fayetteville County. They own a $2.1 million home in New York City in a luxury condominium in Buckhead. For the past 15 years, they've had two private jets and a crew that whisks them to every corner of the globe. 
Lately, the beginning of this year, Creeflow was trying to raise $65 million because he wanted a new Gulfstream, a G650. All right, so he wanted this G650, so he said, I need $65 million, let's raise the money, and he started a campaign. This is amazing. Some people got upset about that. You got a couple jets already. Why do you need this? Here's the funny part. Even if you raise the money, there's a waiting list for the G650. Okay? It would take four or five years before you could ever get one. They only sell about 50 of these a year, and obviously they got orders for way more than they can make. You know, maybe that's, you know, I guess there's a lot of people out there that have money. They can spend $65, $70 million on a plane, but he wanted this plane, and and he got before his people, and he justified it. Well, believe in God for this 60. Did God promise you a $65 million jet? How do you believe him for something he never promised you? Listen, this type of false teacher preaches the health wealth gospel. Okay? He says, send your money to God and he will bless you with health and wealth. You got to send a seed in. Send that seed offering. And see, you give a little, God will give you back. And, and you know what he uses for an example? Look at me. I'm rich. I got all this money. And he doesn't say, because you're so dumb, you keep sending me yours. You know, he doesn't tell them that. But these people send their money in. And sadly, most of these people are people who don't have a lot of money. But because so many people are sick and so many people are in poverty, they're like, oh, I'm going to try this. Let's see if this works. False teachers, just like Balaam. They're out there for the money they can get. And listen, uh, they... I used to be a, a devoted follower of Kenneth Copeland, okay, in my young Christian days. All right, I got a hold of him. I mean, he's preaching the word. I'm like, wow, this is cool. I started following him. I started writing notes. I started studying behind him. And sooner or later, I thought, you know, he said that last time, or he said that. Here. And I kept, and every sermon I figured out was the same. He's saying the same thing every time. You know, I could quote the verses that before he even said them, because I knew it was coming up, and I'm thinking, Wow, I wonder how much study time this guy puts in. You know, it's the same thing. But it's always about health. It's always about wealth. It's always, you know, they take one scripture and they hammer it about God wants you to be prosperous. He wants you to have all this stuff. Send in your money. I used to like Dr. Gene Scott. Any of you remember Gene Scott? He he was notorious for being absurd, but he was honest at least, okay? He he would smoke a pipe. He'd He'd sit in his easy chair, smoking a pipe, and they'd... Zoom in on him, you know, and he had one glove on like Michael Jackson. He'd be smoking that pipe. And he goes, one of our readers sends this in. And he goes, we want to know what you do with all the money people send you. So he takes a draw on his pipe. And he leans into the camera and he goes, it ain't none of your damn business. Just send it in. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, sir. I like someone who's least honest, okay? People obviously did. The guy was wealthy. And I'm thinking, what is wrong with people? You know? Well, Balaam is killed in Israel's battle with the Moabites. All right, he's, it says, and they killed Balaam, the son of Beor, with a sword. Numbers 31. He was put to death because of his wickedness. So Balaam then represents two things. The covetousness of false teachers who love money and the apostate who influences others to sin. Now, see, in a sense, this is a step beyond Cain. Cain just sinned. Balaam got other people. He got God's people to sin. I mean, that's, how is a prophet wanting to get God's people in sin? You know, that's just sick, but that's, he was in it for the money, and so he was doing what he could do. All right, last. And perished in the rebellion of Korah. We learned from Exodus 6, 16 and 21, that Korah was a Levite. 
which would make him a near relative of Moses and Aaron. Alright, so this is Moses, Aaron, this is a relative. The story of Korah is told in number 16. Because Korah was a Levite, that put him in with a sense of responsibility. As a Levite, his job would be take care of the temple, take care of the worship. He's supposed to be doing that. Well, he's one of the chief men of Israel, and he becomes very jealous over Moses and Aaron. You know, I just don't like these guys calling all the shots. And so he rose up in rebellion against them and against their rule over the congregation. In number 16.3, it says, They assembled together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You have gone far enough, for all the congregation is holy. Again, doesn't that sound spiritual? Everybody's holy. Yeah, he's right. Okay, the congregation is holy. Every one of them. And Yahweh is in their midst. So why do you exalt yourself above the assembly of Yahweh? Let me ask you something. Did Moses exalt himself to this position? (laughs) He did everything he could to get out of this position. God, I can't speak. Don't take me. How about somebody else? I don't want to be involved. He didn't want this position at all. Many times he tried to get out of it. Now, in the Hebrew tradition, Korah was considered to have possessed great wealth, adding to his own self-importance. You can understand that. You know, got a lot of money, so he thinks he's really important. He thinks he can do something. Well, Moses' response was to put out a challenge. Okay, you think I shouldn't be here? Let's have a little challenge, all right? Everybody loves a good challenge, right? And he spoke to Korah and all his company saying, Tomorrow morning, you guys want to argue with me? Tomorrow morning, Yahweh will show you who is his and who is holy. And will bring him near to himself, even the one whom he chooses, he will bring near to himself. All right, so Yahweh's going to show you who is his. Moses makes it clear that Korah and those involved with him are not really challenging him. They're challenging Yahweh who put them in the place of authority. So this is a challenge against Yahweh. He says, therefore, you and all your company are to gather together against Yahweh. But as for Aaron, who who is he that you grumble against him? All right. So, again, it's against Yahweh. Not Listen, not real smart to gather a group against Yahweh. What do you think you're going to accomplish? I mean, they, listen, they saw the exodus. They saw it. And yet they're grumbling against him. Not real smart. Thus Korah assembled all the congregation against them at the doorway of the tent of meeting. And the glory of Yahweh appeared to all the congregation. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation that I may consume them instantly. So Moses warns the people, he says, listen, get away from Korah, all of you, get your stuff and get back. And most of the people heeded that and got out of the way. Moses said, by this you shall know that Yahweh has sent me to do all these deeds, for this is not my doing. If these men die the death of all men, or if they suffer the fate of all men, then Yahweh has not sent me. All right, listen, if these people die regular death, something happens to them like normal people, then obviously I'm not the Lord's man. But he says if something unusual happens, let's say the ground opens up and swallows them. What? Where do you come up with this crazy stuff? Then you know that I'm God's man. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up and their households and all the men who belong to Korah with their possessions. So they and all that belong to them went down alive into Sheol. And the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. Now, Moses records the terrifying, dramatic destruction of Korah. He says, listen, you know, it's interesting that Moses says, 
If something unusual happens, like the ground opening up, and then the ground opens up and swallows them, uh, what about those people that are standing around that saw this? But guys, I want you to notice something here. The household died with them. And I think, fathers, we've got to understand that our sins that may be practiced in private have consequence that permeate through the family. As men, we're responsible for our families. And here, all through Scripture, we see the judgment on the household. The wife might have been a good submissive wife, but she died with him because of his sin. It says, Fire also came forth from Yahweh and consumed the 250 men who were offering their incense. So, you know, it wasn't just Korah and his little gang there. He had got these 250 to go, you know, get your fire pans, get your incense, and we're going to offer this. We're going to show you who's in charge here. Well, they, they all get burned up. Well, how big is the rebellion? How big of an effect did this one guy have? You know, I mean, it's just Korah. You got the 250. Okay, that's a good group, right? Well, listen, the popular support gained by Korah is evident in the aftermath of the incident. As the people blame Moses for the rebels' destruction. Watch this. But on the next day. All right, you're standing there. Moses says, something unusual happens. And the earth opens up. Then I'm there. And the earth opens up. Boom, it closes back up. Then fire comes out of heaven, burns up 250 guys. And you're and then on the next day, all the congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Have they lost their minds? I mean, seriously, if you saw somebody do that, you're going to grumble against them? I'd be saying, yes, sir, Moses, sir, whatever you want me to do. I mean, come on. All the congregation grumble. They're crazy. They just see Korah and his buddies swallowed by the earth. They see 250 people burned up, and they blame Moses. Do you really want to grumble against a man that could do this? If Moses did do it, why would you grumble against him? So Yahweh judges those people with a plague. Number 1649. But those who died by the plague were 14,700 besides those who died of Korah. Almost 15,000 people died in a subsequent plague. Now how effective was the rebellion? Pretty effective. Got a lot of people involved. Only Aaron's intervention as priest tempers Yahweh's wrath or he'd have wiped them all out. So Jude says, and they perished in the rebellion of Korah. As we have seen, the rebellion of Korah was against Yahweh and his appointed representatives. Notice that the word perished here is not future, but it's aorist indicative. Now, again, Jude is talking about the apostates of that day that are corrupting the church. He says, and perished. Referring to them, those guys perished. What? They didn't perish yet. You're right, they didn't perish. This is an aorist indicative, and it's almost surely proleptic. When Proleptic is used when something is so sure it's spoken of like it's already happened in Scripture. So he, these, the destruction of these guys is so certain, he's saying they already perished in the rebellion of Korah. So sure was their doom that he talked about it in the past. The word rebellion here, from the Greek word antilogia, from anti, which means against, and lego, which means to speak. It literally means speaking against, talking back. Rebellion. Now, in number 16, 1 through 3, Korah spoke against God's servant Moses. Korah led many people to their deaths through false doctrine. He wanted to function as a leader. And he didn't recognize the delegated authority of Moses. Yahweh warned Israel of their sin and rebellion. 
at 1 Samuel 15, 23, he says, For rebellion is as the sin of divination and insubordination, as is iniquity and idolatry. He says, listen, rebellion is not some little tiny thing. They're rebelling against the authority of God. It was against Yahweh and the rulers that he had clearly appointed. But Korah wasn't satisfied. He said, I want to be in charge. I want to be the leader. And you saw what happened to him. So all these men, Korah, Cain, Balaam, Korah, they all rebelled against Yahweh, and they rebelled against his doctrine. They wanted to do things their way. Cain says, I'm going to bring my own sacrifice. I got to, you know, mine's just as good as Abel's. I'm going to do it my way. It doesn't matter what God said. Balaam said, I'm just in the, I want money, and if I can get money doing this, and that's good. And boy, today people are making a fortune, these TV preachers. They're making a fortune. And Korah says, I want to be in charge. I want to be a leader. I want to be a leader against the truth of God. It doesn't matter who God's appointed leaders are. I want to rise up and be a leader. They want to do things their way. They want to make money. They want to be in control. So we see that Israel, coming out of Egypt, apostatized from the Lord and were judged. The angels left their first estate and were judged. Sodom and Gomorrah was judged. And then we see Cain, Balaam, and Korah all to remind us of the judgment on apostasy. All to exhort us to flee from apostasy. He says, woe to them! Why? Judgment is coming on these apostates. And he's trying to warn the church then. And listen, I think the church now just as much needs this warning. You've got to guard against false teachers. Listen, the only way you can do that is to know the Word of God. Not what somebody says about the Word of God. But to know the Word of God, which means you spend time in it, you know what it says, and if you're equipped, then you, when you hear false doctrine, the bells are going to start going off. Now, that doesn't sound right to me. And that's why I constantly challenge you to be a Berean. You don't take what you hear. Got in a heated, friendly argument last night with a man who's not a Christian. We were arguing about something not had anything to do with Scripture. But I gave him some off-the-wall view that I have. And he goes, David, that's making me not believe everything you say. And I said, good, you shouldn't believe anything I say. And he just stopped. He goes, oh, good point. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, don't believe what I say. Examine it. Go through the Scriptures with anybody. You need to be a Berean and you examine what's there. Because sometimes things sound really good. You ever heard the saying, if something sounds too good to be true? Probably is. (laughs) All right. You know, all you got to do is send that little bit of money in, and guess what? You're going to be a millionaire. Yeah, yeah, that sounds too good to be true, because it is too good to be true. It's nonsense. All right? And boy, these guys love to jump back into the Old Testament when it comes to tithing, don't they? (laughs) They want to put you under the tithe. Here's what Spurgeon had to say about false teaching. I'll close with this. He says, the new views are not old truth in a better dress, but deadly errors with which we can have no fellowship. I cannot endure false doctrine however neatly it may be put before me. Would you have me eat poisoned meat because the dish is of the choicest ware? Only Spurgeon can put it that way. All right, listen, people, we've got to beware of false doctrine. But again, you know, this is a big thing with Jude. The only way to protect yourself is to know the Scripture. Know the truth. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for the opportunity to look at your word. Father, I thank you for these examples that you have given us of Cain and Balaam and Korah. Father, may we be just 
strengthened through these examples. May we be cautious because of these examples. May you give us a heart, Lord, that wants to examine things to make sure it lines up with the Word of God. Father, give us a heart for your Scripture. May we desire it. May we pour over it. May it pour through us that we may know the truth. We would know you in an intimate way and our desire would be, Lord, to make you known. Thank you for your grace to us, Lord. Amen.